Right. Well, we are going to be focusing on uh, session number four in your handout there. You can turn there with me on uh, the responsibility of parents for instruction. The last couple of weeks, we spent our time focused on the issue of discipline uh, from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, where we are reminded that our job description as parents is to bring our children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so there's to be training, there's to be both formative training and corrective training uh, that we are committed to as parents. And uh, now we turn our attention to that second aspect of instruction. Now, it's not that those are totally separate. You know, in every instance, it's not that you say, well, I'm either disciplining or I'm instructing. There's significant overlap there. Um, but just to help us think through those things, we're going to uh, focus our attention on the second of those today. You know, and if, if we have not been faithful, as I mentioned last time, to discipline our kids, to establish authority in our home, where they are coming underneath our authority, it's very difficult for us to instruct them. I mean, you just think practically. Say you have some great things to teach your kids and you sit them down and you say, I wanna to talk to you about this. And they get up and they run away. And you say, oh, I can't talk to you about this. So just in that fundamental way, the, the establishment of authority and structure where our kids are, are obeying us is key to being able to do the instruction that we, that we want. Not that all instruction is formal like that, where they're sitting patiently listening to us. It takes place in all kinds of other ways, as we will talk this morning. I want you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3 as we begin this morning, which is a text that we will uh, we'll come back to at a, at a couple of points throughout the morning. In 2 Timothy, Paul is reminding Timothy, who is a young pastor, of, of the things that he is to be committed to. And in chapter 3, he is reminding him to continue in, in following faithfully the scriptures in contrast to those who have, have wavered from that and who have gone their own way. And in verse 14, he reminds Timothy of these things. He says, you, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. You see, for Timothy, he had been taught the scriptures from the time he was young. He had been instructed in those things. We see elsewhere in Paul's letters by his grandmother, by his mother, uh, by Paul. And so he could say to Timothy, you've known these things from childhood and you have grown in these things and now continue in those things. That's really, uh, I think, the, the hope that each of us would, would have for our children, at least I hope that they would know the scriptures from the time they are young and as they grow, that they would continue in those things so that when they're 40 years old, they're thinking back to, yeah, I've known these things since I was young and I know who I learned these things from and I know what I learned and I'm gonna continue in that way. 
that's the, the hope for our children, that they would know the scriptures, that they would continue in those things. And so we're going to unpack this idea of our instruction uh, today as we think about those realities. And, and I want us just to recognize a number of things that must be true of us if we are going to be faithful to instruct our kids. The first is pretty simple. We have to first embrace our responsibility for instructing our children. You know, when you look at the scriptures, there's a lot of instruction that takes place, but for children, the primary responsibility for that is given to their parents. Verses like Ephesians 6, 4 that we've already seen, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Verse, uh, we've looked at texts like Deuteronomy 6. We'll look at that a little bit more later on where it says in, in verse 6 that these words which I'm commanding you shall be on your heart and you shall teach them diligently to your sons and you shall talk of them when you sit and when you lie down. Psalm 78 puts it this way. It says that God has established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children. See, over and over in scripture, the book of Proverbs is another great example of father's instructions to sons. The emphasis is on parents and particularly fathers communicating biblical instruction to their children. Now, we live in a day and age where I think just generally we are excited for other people to teach our children. And, there, and there's a lot of good opportunities for that. Uh, you know, in, in a church context, we're excited that there are people like Sunday school teachers who are with your children right now who are making good use of the time and who are instructing them in the scriptures. You know, and in so many other areas of life, uh, we, we are sort of conditioned to have experts teaching our children. So if you want your kid to learn piano, you pay somebody to teach them piano. If you want them to, to learn other skills, you know, we take them to experts to do that. And we can be prone to think that way in regards to spiritual things. That, well, maybe I, I don't know how to play the piano, and so I'll, I'll pay somebody else to teach my kids how to do that. And in the same way with spiritual things, maybe I'm not all that I need to be or want to be in that way, and so I'll just rely on experts to do that. The scriptures say that can be a help to have others come alongside us, but parents have the primary responsibility for instructing their children. That doesn't mean that you're alone in it. <laughs> doesn't mean that it's all you. No, it just means we have to embrace that. To say, yeah, I, I want to play that primary role in the lives of my kids. So embrace your responsibility for instructing your children. Secondly, we need to remember our goal in instructing our children. If you're still in 2 Timothy 3, notice what Paul said to Timothy. He said, you, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of knowing from whom you have learned them. There's a progression there. He, he says, continue in what you've learned and become convinced of. Now that's not in chronological order of how that happened for Timothy. It's, it's a big picture charge to continue, but if you think through the order of what took place for Timothy, Paul would, would describe it this way, and we could think of it this way, that first we would learn, Timothy learned something. He says, continue in what you learned. So our goal is that our kids would learn the scripture and the gospel, that they would understand it, 
that they would be able to articulate those truths, that, that it is in their head. But it didn't stop there for Timothy, and we don't want it to stop there with our children. He says also that, that you, would, you have become convinced of these things. He says, Timothy, you continue in what you first learned and what you became convinced of. You see, there's a head knowledge that we're going for, but that is, is not the end goal. There's also this desire to, that they would be convinced of it, that they would believe it, that it would become their own conviction, not just what they've heard, not just what they, they have, uh, have understood from, from the teaching of others, but that they would be convinced of it. And then ultimately, as Paul charged Timothy, that they would continue in what they have learned and become convinced of. You see, the goal is not that our kids can pass a multiple choice or true false test about the Bible. I mean, that's, that's a step in the right direction, although I've never actually given my children a multiple cho- choice test or true false test about the Bible. But that they have the content is one thing, but the goal is more than that. It's not simply that they learn the content like they do their history or their science or their math. The goal is that they are convinced of its truth and they continue living out the realities that they have have learned. You know, this is what we see throughout scripture. It's not just about head knowledge. Matthew 28, 19, and 20, Jesus teaching the Great Commission says that, that um, we are to be making disciples, teaching them to observe, to obey. There's a conviction and a commitment that bears fruit in life. We want to be seeing our children not simply uh, have head knowledge, but an impact on their life. Think of the, the parable in Matthew 13, 44, where Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. It's a parable Jesus taught about what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. And he says, it's like you find this treasure and, and you stumble across it and, and you bury it and, and you know how valuable it is. And so with joy, you go sell everything that you have so that you can have that treasure. It's the forsaking of everything else to follow Christ in whom the greatest joy and treasure is found. You see, our goal is not that our kids know what treasure is. <laughs> it's not that our kids know that there's treasure in that field over there. It's not even that they know what they'd have to do to buy the field if they wanted to get the treasure. The goal is that they sell everything and they buy the field. That there is a response to what they are, are, uh, are hearing. I love John Piper's quote. He said, what we want from the next generation is not just heads full of right facts about the works of God. We want heads full of right facts and hearts that burn with the fire of love for the God of those facts. Hearts that will sell everything to follow Jesus into the hardest places of the world. We we do want heads full of right facts, but we want more than that. We want our kids to be passionate about and to be committed to the God of those facts because of their love for him. Is what, what does that matter? Why, why does that, uh, or how does that affect our parenting? You know, I, I think it helps us to see that we have to not just be mundanely teaching truth. 
but we have to be passionately communicating the value of that truth and the God of that truth so that our kids are seeing the joy of him and the value and the glory of him. You might think of it this way, it requires offensive parenting, not defensive parenting. It it requires putting Jesus on display. You know, we've seen this a little bit in our, our children related to basketball. Uh, we just spent, the reason my parents are down this weekend is because we had a basketball tournament yesterday and today. And uh, so we had five girls playing on three teams, eight total basketball games, uh, fun couple of days. Um, but they all love basketball, usually. There were a few times where they didn't. But, um, but usually they love basketball. And, and part of why they love basketball is because I have enjoyed basketball. My wife has enjoyed basketball. So they started watching me play in the men's leagues here and uh, they thought that was really fun to watch and cheer and and they've begun to play and we've played with them and then my oldest really started to love basketball and so then the younger ones played with her and 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 that that zeal for basketball was contagious you know is it was it negative was it that I said you shall not play any other sports except basketball don't you dare touch that piano child get out there with a basket was it negative no was it um, that we, um, you know, we just gave them a history lesson about basketball one day and explained how this works and the, the glories of this sport and then we kind of let them go. No, it was that they, they caught the zeal for that. You know, if I told my oldest daughter that basketball was the greatest sport ever invented and that it, it should be her favorite sport and, and maybe I even signed her up to, for a league and took her to practice, but she never saw me touch a basketball or, or watch it or talk about it. You know, she wouldn't grow to enjoy basketball to that same degree. Guys, our goal is that our kids learn truth, that they are convinced of that truth, and that they continue in that truth, and that means w- that affects how we, how we teach. You know, you all probably had that teacher in, in high school who was purely doing it for a job. I remember my, my history teacher. I, I think I had like four bad history teachers in high school. And so I ended high school thinking history is like the most boring thing ever because that's what my teachers communicated. And I learned some history along the way. But then I got to, to uh, seminary and I started to, to read more about church history and, and had begun to build that appreciation. I had people who were passionate about it. It's like, oh, this is, this is cool stuff. Yes, our goal shapes how we do that, but we can't fake that. You, you can't just kind of halfway um, try to teach with passion because it's got to flow from our own hearts first. Which leads us to a third reality. Not only do we need to embrace our responsibility and, and remember our goal, but we also have to recognize that our example is instructing our children. Recognize that your example is instructing your children. Back in 2 Timothy Paul put it this way, he says, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, and then he adds this phrase, knowing from whom you have learned them. It's interesting. You know, he could have said what he gets to, which is the things you have learned are the scriptures, and the scriptures are inspired by God, and he gets there. But his first reminder is not that the scriptures are inspired by God and so continue. The first reminder is remember who you learned them from, knowing from whom you have learned them. 
Now, did he say that because Timothy had been educated in the best possible schools? Uh, you know, had he been to the Ivy League theological education and, and the, the best possible private schools when he was a child? No, it was his grandmother, his mother, and, and then Paul reinforcing those things among others. It wasn't so much the qualifications of the people teaching him. It was, I think, a reference more to the character of the people who were teaching them. The, the example that was set of those very things, that the people who taught you learned these things, they were convinced of these things, they were continuing these things, so you, Timothy, follow that pattern. Continue in those ways. One quote there from J.C. Ryle's book, The Duties of Parents, I think I put it on your handout there, to give children good instruction and a bad example is but beckoning to them with the head to show them the way to heaven while taking them by the hand and leading them in the way to hell. What a powerful quote. To remember that our example matters perhaps even more sometimes than our words. Our words matter, but they are to be reinforced by our example. I, I was a, a middle school education major, and, and uh, when I was studying education, they, they talked some about the idea of the hidden curriculum. What, what are you really teaching? You know, you can be teaching the right content, but how you structure your class and how you interact with your students communicates volumes. You know, if you're teaching a lesson on, on equality, maybe you're teaching about, uh, about slavery and, and racial equality, and yet in your class setting, you only call on one race of pe people, or you call more on boys and, and ignore the girls, or vice versa, you are communicating something different than the words you are saying. What's, what are you really teaching? Not by your words, but by your example. You know, if we're teaching our kids, uh, you know, God is patient and we're doing this great lesson on God is patient and they're continuing to get up and we're continuing to harp on them and, and our voice is raising and, and we're demonstrating impatience while teaching them that God is patient. What are they really learning? See, our example is instructing our children and, and that starts just generally. Our life as a whole speaks volumes to our children. Commenting on this, this text, 2 Timothy Three here, John MacArthur writes this. He says, to successfully learn spiritual convictions from others and to hold them as your own, it is necessary not only to hear them clearly taught, but to see them consistently lived. Again, can God work in someone's heart apart from that? Sure. God is God and he can, can shape people's hearts and work in their hearts, but the normal means that God uses is not simply words of instruction, but that backed up by godly example. That's why in, in places like 1 Timothy 4.16, Paul charges Timothy to pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Not just the things you say, but how you live. That's why Deuteronomy 6, all about teaching our children, it starts with you doing these things in the land which you're going over to possess. That's why he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words shall be on your heart and then you shall teach them. You see, the, the example of our lives communicates volumes to our kids. You know, think, think of some of the, the great 
parent-child stories in the scripture. Think of like Abraham, when, when God told him to sacrifice Isaac. And so they're, they're um, hiking out to where God called them to go and, and uh, Abraham is leading his son Isaac and, and he's about to, uh, uh, to get to where they're gonna do the sacrifice and, and Isaac is you know, curious how this is gonna work out since they don't have anything to sacrifice and Abraham breaks the news to him that actually you are the sacrifice. And there's no indication that there was this great struggle that, that Abraham, you know, by force grabbed Isaac and bound him and carried him kicking and screaming. But Isaac trusted his father, apparently, and was, was willing in that way. I mean, what is, what is Isaac learning in that encounter? He's learning that God is trustworthy. God is, is obedient. And Abraham had faith that God would raise him from the dead. It's possible that maybe Abraham was talking to Isaac about that, that God is going to raise you up if, if this is the direction that God has us to go because you are the child of promise. And Isaac said, okay. And we don't know exactly how all that played out, but think about the lesson there that he is learning not from his dad's words, but from that example. Now, thankfully, God's not asking you to do that with your kids. But he is asking you to treasure Christ more than your children. And that's going to show up in a variety of ways. Quote there in, in your handout, parents, as you would wish your instructions and admonitions to your family to be successful, enforce them by the power of holy example. John Engel James writes, it's not enough for you to be generally pious, meaning just kind of going through the motions, but you should be wholly pious not only to be real disciples, but imminent ones, not only sincere Christians, but consistent ones. Your standard of true religion should be very high. To some parents, I would give this advice. Say less about religion to your children or else manifest more of its influence. Leave off family prayer or else leave off family sins. He says, don't talk about it if you're not gonna live it. Now, that's not an excuse to say, okay, fine, I just won't talk about it obviously. It means you got to talk about it, but you got to figure out uh, the, 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 the issues in your own heart and life and, and have that be a reflection of the reality in your life. Now, does that mean you need to have a perfect example before you instruct your kids? No. It means you need to have a, a growing example. You know, it's okay for your kids to see that you are far from what you want to be, but they see you striving to follow Christ faithfully and to grow. Some of that's related to the opportunities that you've had in the past. You're, we are all in this room at different levels of spiritual growth in our life in different areas. Some of that has to do with our own heart. Some of that has to do simply with the opportunities that we've had to grow. You, you're in a great place to grow. If that hasn't been the pattern for you so far, that is the opportunity you have now to model for your kids. This is what it looks like to be humble and to pursue growth. Our life speaks volumes to your children. That's why in some ways this parenting class could go on indefinitely as we continue to think about every aspect of our own life. But guess what? That's, that's what happens in the church is we just keep growing as we humble ourselves before the Lord and as we work to cultivate our, our own heart before him. So our life speaks volumes to your kids. Your example matters. The second related idea that scripture presents is that your worship is contagious to your children. What you worship is contagious. You know, this time of year, we think a lot about things being contagious. And there's, you know, some spouses who are not here because their kids are contagious. There's some, uh, you know, fear going on in our world right now about a virus that's very contagious and it's causing all sorts of issues in, in the world. And, 
And the scriptures certainly don't tell us, don't worry about those kinds of things that are contagious, but they encourage us to think about the fact that what we worship is contagious. It's interesting, in Exodus chapter 20, if you want to turn there, in the Ten Commandments, God starts with what we worship and who we worship, how we worship. He writes this, In Exodus 20, he says that God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. He reminds them of who he is and what he has done. And he says, you shall have no other gods before me. I'm it. You are to worship me. No other gods. And how you are to do that, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. It says, you worship me, you don't make an idol to worship something else or an idol to represent me in a way that's not true. Why? Verse five, you shall not worship them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, this is not saying that God punishes three and four generations down the road, the idolatry of that first generation. We see elsewhere in 2 Kings 14, 6 and other places where God is very clear. You, You are are judged and punished for what you have done, for your own sins. I think what, what God is expressing here is that God is jealous, and so he will not excuse the sins of the third and fourth generation, even though they learned that from their parents or grandparents or great-grandparents. God is saying this, he is saying, uh, it, God, God will not say, as one commentator puts it this way, I won't punish this generation for what they're doing. After all, they merely learned it from their parents. He says, if you are an idolater, and the result is your kids are an idolater, and the result is your grandkids are an idolater, and the result is your great-grandkids are an idolater, those great-grandkids cannot say, Well, I'm only an idolater because that's what I learned. God says, I am jealous and I will punish the iniquity of that fourth generation. There is, it's not an excuse for them to say, well, I merely learned this from my parents. At the same time, he says, he shows loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. What's his point? You and I should be motivated to not practice idolatry because God is God and he deserves our worship and we should be motivated to not practice idolatry because it has a a significant influence on successive generations. You see this in Israel's history. The the northern kingdom, Jeroboam, uh, after the kingdoms divided, he set up two golden calves that he said, we're not going to Jerusalem to worship, that's that's the other kingdom, we're gonna worship this way. And the result was, for subsequent generations, they practiced idolatry. Ultimately, generations later, they were taken and, and essentially wiped out by the, by the Assyrians. God is jealous, he punishes every subsequent generation. They cannot say, I just simply learned this to my parents. So ask yourself, What is it that you are worshiping? 
what you worship is contagious to your children. It doesn't mean that they're doomed by it. It doesn't mean that they will automatically follow in your footsteps, but it does mean what you communicate by your life that you value most, that matters most, your kids are likely to embrace that as well. If you communicate that you treasure Christ more than your job or your possessions or your comfort or your respect or your family or your spouse or your child, your children are likely to see that is what is most valuable. But if you communicate that other things matter more, that I live for my, my possessions or for money or for the, the uh, approval of others that comes in the realm of my employment or other things, your kids will see that. How many kids do you know who said, you know what, I don't want to be like my dad because he did X, Y, or Z. And, the res- the, and then you look 30 years later and what have they ultimately become? They've become kind of just like their dad. Because what we worship is contagious for our children. Again, it doesn't mean that it is, it is going to have to be that way. You may say, man, my parents worship something way different than what I want to worship. And God's gracious. He can break that cycle. But the normative pattern is we model what we value, what we worship, and if we are doing that uh, focused on Christ, on the Lord, then our kids have the opportunity to see that he is worthy of worship. Again, it's not a guarantee. doesn't mean if you treasure Christ that all your kids will. But it does mean that God says this is a key part of what we do as parents. So what we worship is contagious, but how we worship is contagious. Psalm Psalm 145 is a great verse in verse 4. It it says this, it says, One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. It's fascinating. He, he doesn't just say one generation shall teach your works to another. He says one generation shall praise your works to another and declare your mighty acts. Certainly we're to teach. There's a content transfer. But he says you are to praise. You, you are to, to declare your mighty acts. You see, it's not just what we say. It's how we say it and how we communicate those things. That's why in texts like Deuteronomy 31, 11 and 12 says this, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place which he will choose and you shall read this law in front of all Israel in their hearing, assemble the people, the men, the women, the children, the alien who is in your town that they may hear and learn and fear the Lord your God and be careful to observe all the words of this law. He says, we're all gonna get together. We're gonna read from this law It's going to be a situation where everybody's gathered and everybody says, wow, this matters. This is a big deal. And you're you're to bring your children so that they see that. It'd be kind of like if you you took your kids to the Super Bowl and all these people are gathered together and, and they're watching this football game and it's craziness. And you walk out of there with your kids. I mean, it's possible that your kid would say, yeah, football's dumb. Why'd we do that? They might. But it's more likely that they're going to walk out of there saying, whoa, that was awesome. Can I play football? How do, we, how do I get to do this? You guys, how we worship is contagious. Part of that means we need to model that for our children. There's a, 
a quote there from John and Noel Piper in a little booklet they've put together called The Family Together in God's Presence. It says this, that parents have the responsibility to teach their children by their own example the meaning and value of worship. Therefore, parents should want their children with them in worship so the children can watch the spirit and form of their parents' worship. They should see how mom and dad sing praise to God with joy in their faces, how they listen hungrily to his word. They should catch the spirit of their parents meeting the living God. Something seems wrong when parents want to take their children in the formative years and put them with other children and adults to form their attitude and behavior in worship. Parents should be jealous to model for their children the tremendous value they put on reverence in the presence of Almighty God. Doesn't mean that we have to take all of our children to, to the worship service with us or that that's a guarantee that they'll turn out well. But it does mean if we worship God and we are committed to that, we should be excited for our children to learn about worship from our example. Again, that quote we read earlier, to some we might say, don't take your kids to worship because they're gonna learn that you think it's really boring and you're not engaged and you're not participating and so don't do it. <laughs> but we'd say, hey, if, if this is the, the, the zeal of your heart that says I, I long to be gathered together to worship, to sing, to sit under the teaching of God's word and I want my kids to see that. I want them to see this matters because God matters. What we worship, how we worship, both corporately and in our individual lives matters. Our example is instructing our children. And then a, a third area just to think about is the fact that your marriage preaches the gospel to your children. Won't take a lot of time here, but God cares about marriage. Malachi 2, 14 to 16 highlights how, how passionate God is about marriage how he, he hates divorce because he values marriage and, and the influence that even that has on offspring that text alludes to. That's not just because of some you know, random decision that God says, this is what I'm gonna care about. It's because he made marriage to be a foundation of, of family and society and because he designed marriage to be a picture ultimately of the gospel. Ephesians 5, which gives the um, the, the primary instruction to husbands and wives in terms of their role in relationships, it highlights the fact that dads, that husbands, play the role of modeling Christ and his sacrificial love, and wives have the opportunity to model the, the response of the church, one of trust and, and respect and submission. That it's this beautiful picture of Christ and his love for the church and the church's response to Christ. God says that's why marriage matters is because the gospel matters because this is a picture of it. It wasn't that God said, you know, uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of something that really would be a good example, an illustration of the gospel. What would that be? Hmm. Ah, marriage. We could, we could kind of tie marriage to that. No, it's that God said, I'm going to redeem people through Christ. And so I'm going to design and intend marriage as a picture of that far greater reality. Because that's what you and I have the chance to model for our kids. Now, are we going to do that very well? Eh, it's going to be an imperfect picture at best. But we have that chance to model, to help our children to see that. It's a really long quote there, but it's, it's really good. And so I'm going to read it, and you can read it again later. He, he writes this in the book Gospel-Powered Parenting. William Farley says, The gospel is the good news that the groom loves his bride. 
He loved her so much that he humbled himself, descended an infinite distance, became man, and suffered poverty and abuse for 33 years. Then in the greatest display of love in history, he allowed himself to be tortured to death on a cross in his bride's place. The Son of God did all this to serve his bride, to make peace where enmity reigned. What motivated him? Love that surpasses knowledge. He longed to unite himself in irrevocable love to an unworthy bride. But the gospel is not just about the groom's love. It also provokes a response from his bride. When understood from the heart, it motivates her to humble herself, love the groom with all her heart, respect him and serve him with joyful abandon. The gospel summons Christ's bride to yield to the servant authority of her crucified king. And here's Paul's point in, in Ephesians 5, that Christian marriage preaches this union. It makes it either attractive or ugly. When a husband loves his wife as Christ loves the church, washing her with the word, forgiving her, serving her, tenderly leading her, his marriage says Christ loves his church. You can trust the groom. He's infinitely loving. Serve him. You won't be disappointed. But when a husband is unfaithful to his wife, verbally belittles her, loves his children more than her, takes her for granted, his marriage says Christ's love is not that great. He loves us only when we perform. You can't trust this Savior. You can't meet his expectations. He doesn't keep his promises. Why serve a, a fickle despot? Wives also preach when mom joyfully submits to her husband as to the Lord, recognizing that he is her head as Christ is the head of the church and that she is his body as the church is the body of Christ. It makes an attractive statement. When she does this for an unworthy husband, not because she trusts him, but because she trusts Christ to care for her, it points her children to Christ. Her behavior says Christ is trustworthy. The son of God is infinitely good. You can trust him. But when a wife tells her children to obey Christ, yet doesn't trust him enough to take care of her relationship with an imperfect husband, but seeks to control him, resists his authority, refuses to respect him, and declines to serve him, her actions speak loudly. They say the son of God cannot be trusted. He promises to exalt the humble, but I don't believe he will exalt me. He says he will take care of those who submit to lawful authority, but I don't really believe that. If I don't take care of myself, who will? And in most cases, the children will internalize what she does, not what she says. It's a, it's a sobering quote, isn't it? It's a humbling thing to recognize that on our best days, we are painting a very flawed picture, but it is also a joy to recognize that as we strive to honor Christ in our marriages and to have that attitude towards our spouse that, that the scriptures call us to, we are having the opportunity to declare the gospel to our children. Again, doesn't mean that if we are in a situation where uh, one spouse or, or parent is unfaithful in those ways that our children are doomed to hear that lesson. But it does mean we have the chance to reinforce what we would teach through the power of our example, through the life that we live, through the worship that we uh, engage in, through the marriage that we, that we have. Our example is instructing our children. A fourth aspect of instruction for us is to prioritize scripture in instructing your children. And this moving from our example, from how we live to the things that we say. Again, back in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul reminded Timothy, continue in these things you've learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, the example of those who taught you, and he says, and that from childhood, or your, your translation may even say from infancy, from the time you were a young child, you have known the sacred writings, the scriptures, 
which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. We are to prioritize scripture in the instruction of our children because here we are reminded that scripture is what gives us the wisdom for salvation. This is not simply stated here. It is throughout scripture. Psalm 19.7 says the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. It is the scriptures that bring restoration to our soul. Romans 10 says, faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of Christ. What our children need if they are to gain the wisdom that leads to salvation is an understanding of the sacred writings of the scriptures. Not just random verses, not just you know ideas here or there that get them to maybe think or live how it's convenient for us, but the entire biblical narrative. The, the, a, a biblical worldview of understanding who God is as creator, as the Holy One, of understanding man's sinfulness and, and the resulting uh, consequences of that in our lives and in our world, of God's plan for redemption of, in Christ and an understanding of eternity and where everything is going in God's good design. Our children need to understand the scripture. They need to understand what the Bible teaches about salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. See, Scripture gives wisdom for salvation. We don't, we don't do that on our own. We, we can tell them what we think, and they'll hear what someone else thinks. But the Scripture is what shapes our hearts in, in response to the authoritative truth of God. Scripture gives wisdom for salvation and it, it continues that it's profitable, it's, it's valuable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That is what we are wanting to do with our children. If you think about those things, think of, of your children walking in the way of life. And he says, scripture is profitable for teaching. That's like telling your kids, this is how you should think. This is how you should live. This is what you should believe. This is the path that you should be on. You're teaching them. That's what it's to be. Well, guess what? They get off that path. That's where reproof comes in. Reproof says you're off the path. You're, you're not thinking the way that you should think. You're not living the way that you should live. Correction helps bring them back to that path and training in righteousness helps them now grow to stay on that path. The scripture is useful, it's beneficial, it's what does that. We, we don't do that on our own, we don't have the wisdom to do that. The scripture is what is authoritative, the scripture is what pierces hearts and brings conviction, the scripture is what renews our minds. We have to prioritize scripture in our instruction with our children. If we're gonna do that, that means scripture must be the primary content of our instruction. It must be what we are communicating to our children. Again, that, that sometimes, we'll get into this, looks more formal, reading scripture, talking directly about scripture. Sometimes that's more general, the big picture story of scripture, the theology that the scriptures teach, the wise application of that, the practice of this. Yes, your children and mine can understand more than we think they can sometimes. 
They, they are not able to understand everything in the same way that we can, but they are able to begin to process and understand the truth of God's word as it is laid out for them. And as we've seen before, the issue with our children is not primarily one of, of mental capacity, it's primarily the moral condition of their heart. The, the, if, if they don't want to understand God's truth, it's oftentimes not that they can't, it's that they don't want to because they wanna live how they wanna live. Now again, we need to be age appropriate in the things that we, that we communicate, but we have to be faithful to unpack the scriptures with and for our children. Your children uh, need a steady diet of God's word and they need that to come not simply from others and from formal contexts like Sunday school, but in the context of their home. Again, knowing that the goal is not simply that they can answer a lot of questions about the Bible or quote a lot of verses about the Bible, but that it is ultimately transforming their hearts. Now, if scripture is gonna be the primary content of our instruction, that means, secondly, that scripture must be filling our minds and hearts. Turn to Deuteronomy 6, and you see this very clearly. And you know this, just practically, in other aspects of life, you cannot be instructing your children in what you yourselves do not understand and know. Deuteronomy 6, verse four says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. And then verse seven, you shall teach them diligently to your sons and talk of them when you sit in the house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. Guys, we cannot have scripture be the primary content of our instruction with our children if our minds and hearts are not full of scripture. You know, I'm, a, I'm coaching my youngest girls basketball team and Christy's helping me, we're having fun. It's the, uh, I've been an assistant coach before, I've played some basketball before, but I don't know as much as I ought to know about basketball to ultimately be able to help them be the best team that they can be. There's a limit on the instruction that I can give and it's what's in my own mind and heart. <laughs> Now, I'm ahead of them, so I can still help them, but I, I'm not as far ahead of them as I would need to be if I wanna keep going in this, so I'm gonna have to learn more. Yeah, so it is with scripture. You don't have to know it all. <laughs> you gotta be ahead of them, and you gotta be eager to learn more so that you can continue to bring the scripture accurately to bear on their life. Again, does that mean that you gotta know it all before you can talk? Nope. <laughs> it just means you've gotta be actively intaking scripture yourself so that it can flow out of you into your children. This means we need to do things like read scripture. We need to spend time ourselves reading the Bible. If you struggle to understand it, get a good, good study Bible so that you can read and, and understand in context what's going on. We need to be thinking carefully about the scriptures, taking it in, Day by day, we need to study scripture. Again, that's gonna look different depending on where you are and your abilities and understanding of scripture. 
but we need to be thinking carefully about it, dwelling on key verses so that we can understand them. We do that in, in our sermons. We do that in other class settings. That can be a helpful tool for understanding that. We need to memorize scripture. If you're going to talk to your kids about stuff, it's got to be in your mind. And that's not just so that you can talk about it. It's so that you can do what is really critical in scripture, which is meditating on scripture, thinking about it over and over so that you are ingesting it and applying it in your life. You see, the reason why we so often don't um, have an ability to express scripture to our children or we aren't living it out in our life is because we think about it very briefly. We need to meditate on it. We need to take small chunks of scripture, work to memorize them and dwell on them throughout the day so that that truth is becoming what is in our mind and hearts and it is overflowing in our lives. Joshua 1.8 puts it this way. It says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. Not, not saying you shouldn't stop talking about it. It was more how they would read back then, reading orally out loud uh, or, or, or um, and so this, this book of the law, it's to be constantly on your mind um, and, and he says, you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. It says, be reading it and be meditating on it so that you will do. Meditation is that, that key component of having our minds and our hearts renewed. And you guys, that's what allows us to now faithfully instruct our children. And there are tools to help us. There are things that can be a great blessing to us, but it needs to be on our hearts and on our minds. We have to prioritize scripture in instructing our children. And in that, we also have to fifthly, should be fifthly there, I think, emphasize the gospel in instructing your children. That's what, that's what Paul highlighted for Timothy and what the scriptures are driving us towards is an understanding of the gospel. You've known the sacred writings, which give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Your kids and mine need to hear repeatedly the truth of the gospel. That needs to come out day after day after day in our interactions with our kids from the scriptures. Now you might think of the truth of the gospel in a couple of different ways. You know, you might think of it more as the, the set of theological truths that make up the gospel. And, and that's a right way to think. There's truth about God and about man and our sin and about Christ and what he has done and about how we need to respond to that in faith. Those, those theological realities that make up the content of the gospel. But the gospel is also a, a story. It's a narrative of centralized in Christ, but that story of how God created the world that fell into sin and God is redeeming this world through Christ, through those events of Christ's life, his death and his burial and his resurrection, ultimately leading towards the new creation of the new heavens and a new earth and, and our new creation. Yes, those are both talking about the gospel, the theological truth, and the narrative story of what God is doing. 
So you guys, we can talk about the gospel in, in a variety of ways with our children. You think about something like that story of creation fall and how God is redeeming the world and, and leading new creation. When something bad happens in our world, why does it happen? Well, because of sin. So when your kid's sick, what is that a chance to talk about? It's a chance to talk about how we live in a fallen world that is messed up and marred by sin. And I'm not saying that you sinned and therefore you got sick, although it is true that you sinned and you are now sick. But it's not a one-to-one correlation. It's not that you sinned yesterday and God gave you the flu today. It's that we are sinners, and so our world is marred by sin, and yet there's hope because of Christ, and we look forward to all things being made new and made right. So it's not just you know, the, what we think of as the, uh, you know, kind of the, the, the real tight definition of the gospel, although that is a primary thing we're communicating, but it's that whole picture of the world in light of the gospel, in light of, of God's um, character and his creation and fall and and the the redemption that he is bringing about our kids need to hear the gospel and no that's not just to say we need to get them the gospel until they get saved and now we can move on to other things no we all need the gospel continually we need to remind ourselves of the gospel we've just been studying romans We've spent a long time in the gospel. Why? Because none of us are saved and we need the gospel? No, because we are are Christians, the majority of people attending and listening to these sermons, and yet we need the gospel, and we need to understand it, and the implications of that, and how it bears fruit in our life. So do not move on from the truth of the gospel with your children. Continue to come back to that. They also need to understand the need that they have for the gospel. Again, discipline is a primary opportunity for this, as we've talked about, and we'll talk about more in a moment. They also need to understand that this is not simply for them, but it is for others, that all people have need of the gospel. If you tell your kids that they desperately need to hear the truth of the gospel and to respond to that, and you are never actively, individually, or as a family participating in telling anybody else the truth of the gospel, what are your kids learning? That you are lying to them, (laughs) right? They're learning that you think this matters for me, but you don't think it matters for anybody else. So either you don't love anybody else, or you don't really believe that the gospel is that important for people. Because we, we need to help them see their need, but their need in context of everybody's need, that we have to be believing and proclaiming this message. We have to be faithful to emphasize the gospel and in instructing our children that truth of the gospel and the need for the gospel, both them and for others. And then lastly, we want to be intentional in instructing our children. I'm kind of tying this together. So what does this look like? How do we be intentional in instructing our children? Back in Deuteronomy 6, where we saw that these words first have to be on our hearts, gives us then a pattern for what does this look like? Verse 7 of Deuteronomy 6 says, you shall teach them diligently. It's the idea of repetition, like carving something into a stone. You shall do this over and over and over, and and eventually it, it makes an impact. Teach them diligently. This refers more to to formal instruction, teaching them. 
being careful to teach them. And then he goes on and says, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house. This is more informal. So if we're gonna be intentional to instruct our children, we have to do that through formal instruction, through saying there are intentional ways we wanna bring the scriptures and the gospel to our children. What might that look like? Well, certainly that uh, may well involve or ought to involve more formal times with your family of reading the Bible or studying the Bible. Sometimes we call this family worship. Don't, don't make that intimidating. It's not that you have to do what we do when we gather corporately for worship and it's like, okay, who's, who's playing the violin today and you know we're, we got this big deal, who's leading? No, I mean, it's just doing the things that we do corporately, praying, maybe singing, reading the Bible, uh, those things that we can do together as a family doesn't have to be a big deal there's tools that can help I'll mention a couple of those if your kids are in Sunday school there's a a family devotion guide this is actually the uh, year one one but our year two one is what we're on right now just gives some little follow-up uh, um, readings and questions that you can work through with your kids so it's not separate from what they're doing in Sunday school but you are reinforcing that and you are building off the things that they're hearing hearing here in those ways Yes, you can use something like that. There's other resources listed in the back of your guide, uh, your, uh, your notes page there, packet there, um, that can help you in that way. You might start when your kids are young with something simpler. There's some other kids' Bibles up here. Uh, one that, that is great for really young kids is the Big Picture Story Bible. It, uh, it's basically what it says, the Big Picture Story Bible. The pictures are big and it gives the big picture of the Bible. And so pretty simple, easy to read with your kids, beginning to get in those habits and patterns. There's some other ones that uh, as your kids age can be helpful to that end as well. Again, we live in a day and age where there are lots of helpful resources to, to encourage us and to spur us on in those ways. Enjoy those things, enjoy those opportunities. Don't make too much of them, be excited about it. You can start simply and, uh, and, and encourage them in that. Again, using other resources, your, our Sunday school curriculum, Awana, if your kids are involved with that, it's a great chance to follow up with them at home in, uh, in those ways formally. There's some other things that, that our church does to try to encourage and help. We have catechism questions in Sunday school that we are working on. If you have, uh, have, this, uh, have seen this booklet, you can also get this content um, on our church website. If you go to the Sunday school page of our church website, you will see what the lesson is from that day, some questions to talk to your kids about. You'll see the catechism question that we were working on that day. Um, this is the whole catechism, so it's got uh, questions and answers. This could be something that you're working with your kids on, maybe at a meal time, um, asking those questions, talking about those questions, just working through those things with your children. Uh, again, that's more formal, it's intentional. We wanna do this in a regular and ongoing way. That could be through scripture memory as well, maybe things you know your family needs to memorize or you're working on together, maybe through Awana or other things as well. Um, good music is another great avenue for formally instructing your kids. Again, it, it, we're, we're crossing that line between formal and informal, but to intentionally teach your kids through song. Your kids can learn music like crazy. 
they can understand and uh, and uh, and and pick up songs in a way that is is just amazing at that particular age. So good music like the catechism questions. If you go to our Sunday school page, there's a link where you can download them as MP3s. Um, we do still have some CDs if your car has uh, has one of those funky things that you can slide those in. Um, but these are they're, they're catechism songs put to uh, to music. There's a number of other kids songs that are in there. My philosophy of good children's songs is good content, biblical content, rich theological truth that doesn't make me go crazy if I have to listen to it for 30 minutes. So I'm not looking for songs that I'm like, oh, I don't want to listen to that. Uh, I'm looking for songs that's like, yeah, I like this. And my kids like this too. And, and it's good, solid truth. And there's a number of things that are helpful to that end. Um, other good books or, or movies that your kids can watch. There's some good, um, good uh, content in Jesus Storybook Bible DVDs. There's a, a series called What's in the Bible that is more for older kids that works through all of the scriptures. It's, um, it's uh, generally well done. Obviously, there's some things in any resource that uh, may have wished they would have done a little bit differently, but that's, that's life. Um, you know, so those kinds of things that we're intentionally saying we want to make use of, of these. Um, another great uh, kids' music that I forgot to mention, Seeds Family Worship, has a lot of, of great scripture songs that, again, are, are well done. Uh, I think if you have Amazon Prime Music, I think they're still available um, through that, so you can listen to them those ways as well. Lots of good ways that we can say, I want to intentionally teach my children in an age-appropriate way. Formal instruction matters, but it's not the only thing we need to be doing. We also need to be intentionally instructing our children through informal interaction. That's that verse seven, talk of them when you sit in the house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. Have that formal time and approach, but also be committed to say, we just want to talk about these things all the time. We want to be interacting with our children faithfully all the time. Tad Thompson in his book, Intentional Parenting, put it this way. He says, Moses understood that God's truth cannot effectively be taught if it's confined to the home or classroom. How will our children believe that the Bible is about all of life if we only talk about it during the Bible lesson? To put it another way, discipleship is most effectively accomplished when the practice is integrated into the rhythm of everyday life. A consistent time of family worship, for example, is a great discipleship practice, but it is no substitute for a lifestyle of discipleship that encompasses the breakfast table, the car, bedtime, errands, and chores. There is not a single moment in life that cannot be used as an opportunity for instruction. Yes, we need to be talking about God and his word all throughout the day. Because if we truly believe that God is ultimately what is, who is worthy of our worship and we're living for his glory and we believe that the Bible is true and it speaks to all of life, it should intersect with all of our life. And therefore we should overflow into the lives of our children. Some of this just means listening to our kids and, and asking good questions of our children. No, it means paying attention to stuff they're talking about or they're asking us about and helping to direct them to the truth of scripture from that. Again, it can be big picture stuff. You know, your kid says, oh, mom, look at that bug. And you say, great. Uh, or you say, yeah, isn't it amazing what God has made? I mean, the difference between those two is is. One is informally reinforcing the truth about God, and one is just kind of, I'm getting on with my day and I don't like bugs. 
You know, sometimes it's asking good questions of our kids. Just asking them, trying to get them to talk and think about things. What, what does God say about these things in his word? Sometimes we just have to be intentional to create time to talk. You know, time in the car is, a, is both a, a curse and it can be a blessing that we have time in the car to interact and, and talk with our children to engage with them. If you have a, a, a good song playing and then uh, you can ask your kids what that song was talking about and, and interact in those ways. I think this is most challenging probably for dads. I uh, saw a, a cartoon a while back and, and uh, it had a kid and it said, ask a mom, you know, the kid comes to the mom and says, where do birds go in the winter? And the mom says, that's a great question. Let's go to the library and find a book on that. You ask the dad, where do birds go in the winter? And the dad says, that way. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just kind of a different mindset where moms tend to be more likely to engage in more extended conversation with their children. And so I think this comes more naturally for them, although it doesn't mean that it will, will always happen as it ought. But dads, I think have to, we have to work harder at this. To say, I don't want to just give a short answer and get back to what I'm doing. I want to engage with my children in these things. There's a great book called Everyday Talk, talking freely and naturally about God with your children that, that really unpacks more of practically how to do this. If you see this as a, uh, a struggle for you or you're like, man, I don't know what that even looks like, great resource to help flesh that out for you. So be intentional through formal instruction, through informal interaction, and, and lastly, through purposeful discipline. We've talked about this already, but those times of discipline are a great opportunity to intentionally instruct our children, not just to try to change their behavior so life goes better for everybody in your home, but to instruct them in the truth. If we're gonna do that, as we've talked in the past couple of weeks, we need to be careful to be addressing their heart. Recognizing this is not just about behavior change, but the things that come out of us, our speech and our actions, they flow from our hearts. Just learning how and, and beginning to cultivate patterns of talking with our kids in ways that are connected more to their hearts. So instead of saying things like, don't you ever hit your brother again, to you are to love your brother as you love yourself, is, is that what you were doing in that, in that moment? Or don't glare at me like that, or stop rolling your eyes, to you are to have a, a heart that honors and respects the authority God has placed over you. You know, we need to think about what are those common acts and behaviors that we're dealing with with our children, and what are the underlying heart issues, and how can we, we um, help draw those things out? Some of that means that we are not only talking to our children and, and pointing out those things, but we are trying to help them see those things, to, to be appealing to their own conscience, to be using questions and stories to try to help our kids feel the weight of things instead of just talking to them. I think this becomes even more critical as our kids age. You think of David and Nathan, when, when Nathan confronted David for his sin and and he didn't just walk up and say, um, you know, David, you're, you're an adulterer and a murderer and you need to repent. He told him a story and he drew him in to help him see, here's what you're doing and here's how egregious you think this is and guess what, you're doing the same thing only worse. He, he was insightful in how he approached that. 
You know, again, that doesn't mean you have to be a master storyteller uh, to come up with these great examples and analogies, but it does mean we do want to think about how can we help our kids through questions or stories to see the kinds of things that they are, are doing. You know, I think um, it, it, it can be in other resources that we find helpful analogies and things that we can use. Uh, you know, somebody shared with me a, a number of years ago the analogy about a, a dad teaching their son about uh, the sin of fornication of, of premarital sex and those things and talking through that and using an analogy of, you know, y- if you want to get a, a cold drink of water, would you rather get that from the fridge or would you rather get that from the toilet? You know, both are water, but they're very different. And, and what is it that you want to pursue? God says, this is where we enjoy the blessing of physical intimacy. And it's in the context of marriage. And when we do it uh, contrary to God's way, it's like going to get a drink from the toilet. You know, those, those kinds of things, again, not, not because scripture is not sufficient in the instruction that it gives, but trying to help our kids feel the weight and understand the truth of what scripture gives us. Lupriolo puts it this way, he says, when using scripture for the purpose of conviction, you should take aim at the conscience of your children. We must try to disturb any complacency and indifference to sin and awaken them to the fact that he or she has done or not done something that is displeasing to God. And one of the most effective ways of awakening the conscience of others is by asking them questions. Instead of saying things like, I can't believe you talked that way to your mother, how disrespectful, to say to them, what was wrong with how you just spoke to your mother? To, to help them to think and process. Again, particularly as your children age and enter that kind of preteen and, and teenage years. Uh, Paul David Tripp's written a great book, Age of Opportunity, about that season of life. And one of the primary things is you go from monologuing to your kids to trying to ask questions, to draw them out, still speaking to them and shaping their thinking, but you want to draw out what's in their heart. You want to help them think about what's going on in their heart. Asking good questions, and you can begin that when your children are young in the context of discipline. Instead of just telling them why they're there, asking them why they're there. Instead of just telling them what was wrong with their thinking, asking them how they should have been thinking and responding. We need to be doing intentional instruction as we are disciplining by addressing their heart and appealing to their conscience and ultimately directing to the gospel as we saw last time. As Ted Tripp writes, the central focus of child rearing is to bring children to a sober assessment of themselves as sinners. The focal point of your discipline and correction must be your children seeing their utter inability to do the things that God requires unless they know the help and strength of God. Discipline leads to the cross of Christ where sinful people are forgiven. Don't just discipline your kids to change their behavior. Discipline your kids leading them to the gospel. If you want your instruction to emphasize the gospel, discipline is a powerful opportunity. Not the only one, but a powerful opportunity for that. So may God give us the grace to be faithful, to instruct our children. You know, in the back of your your little booklet there are some recommended resources for parents. We'll, I'll, I'll highlight a few of these in the, in the coming weeks, but uh, just encourage you to, to look through those things a little bit to think about what might help us best as we seek to instruct our children. So it, it starts with some books about parenting. Those are more resources for you to think about. 
resources to help you. So if you say, man, we've never really done any, uh, anything formally at home in terms of family worship. Well, there's a couple of, uh, or there's a, a book by Don Whitney, Family Worship. If you've never taken your kids into the worship service with you, there's a, a helpful article, Your Family Together in God's Presence, uh, other books there that could be help helpful. And then uh, just some other books on the second page there related to parenting um, that, that cover topics like what is the gospel? If you say, man, I'd love to talk to my kids more about the gospel, but I, I need to get a better framework of that. Uh, very helpful for you to think about in those ways. Uh, then some, some mini books, they're like little booklets, little pamphlet type things on um, short issues on, on different things related to parenting. And then the, the last section there is, is books um, and resources that are more for you to use with your children. So books for parents to read or study with their kids, uh, books for kids who can read themselves, and, and then some DVDs and music resources. So um, you might look, look uh, over those lists, uh, look some stuff up on Amazon, see what might be a good fit for you. I don't suggest that you go out and buy all of these, although you're welcome to, um, but that's not really the intent. The intent is that you have some, some breadth of available resources so that you can find things that would fit well for your season of life. And again, we'll talk more about that. There's a few of them up here that you're welcome to come and, uh, and take a look at over the next couple of weeks of class as well. So we're going we're gonna to turn our attention next week to kind of the application of these things in different specific challenges that we face as parents. So what are some, some pertinent issues that it's difficult to navigate in today's world? Uh, and how do we think rightly about that? And how do we bring instruction and training to bear on those things? So look forward to our time next week. We've got two more weeks of, uh, of parenting class. So hope you'll uh, continue to be able to be with us. And I don't have any idea if we have snack signups for the next couple of weeks, but if not, would love for somebody to, to serve us in that way. So let's pray and uh, let you guys go. Father, thank you for the time to think together today about these things. Lord, we just are, are humbled by the fact that we uh, fall short uh, in significant ways of the model that you have laid out for us. And, and yet, Lord, I pray that it would be each of our heart desire to do this faithfully. And Lord, we recognize that starts with us in our own hearts and minds. Lord, help us to be committed to have your words be on our heart. Help us to be committed to worship you above all else and, and Lord, to be quick to repent in areas of our life where that hasn't been the case. And, and Lord, if, if there's any here today who are not in Christ, who, who it's not their, their sincere love and desire to honor you in every aspect of their life, Lord, I pray that you would bring them to that point, not simply for their sake, although for their sake, but for the sake of your glory and for the sake of their children. Lord, I pray that we would be faithful to instruct our kids this week, not simply by the words that we say, but by the way that we live. And might this lead to them being convinced of the truth of your word and continuing in that for a lifetime. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.